Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The reason I love doing this show is because I love movies and books and the people who create them. I started doing interviews when I was in high school. My first was Ray Bradbury, who was my favorite author. My second was Rod Serling, creator of the iconic Twilight Zone and Night Gallery series. Having access to creators and how they create has been the greatest inspiration to me as I work to become better at those things I do in my work. Yes, even in my gray years, I still learn something from every conversation we have on this podcast. Though we originally began chatting only with directors, our field of dreams and dreamers has expanded to include writers, actors, makeup effects, wizards, even studio heads. It's an offer to look into the windows of personal creative process. It's a unique opportunity to probe the minds of people whose work I admire and share their inspirations and motivations and processes with others whom I assume will feel the same way I do. Having done well over a hundred interviews with subjects from all around the world has expanded my creative consciousness in ways I never imagined when this podcast began over five years ago. It feels very special to be able to learn and share together here, and I'm grateful to have this platform, a platform that didn't exist when I was a nation filmmaker. Thanks to all the guests and listeners for making this happen. Our guest for this episode's Talents are wide ranging. He's an actor, a screenwriter, a comedian, a director, and a producer. His range from comedy to drama to contemporary science fiction is awe-inspiring. And we're going to learn more about Ben Stiller and his work and inspirations after this. Now available on VOD from Breaking Glass Pictures, the new horror feature, Flee the Light. This chilling film tells the story of a psychology student who attempts to cure her sister's crippling psychosis, only to uncover its dark origin, an ancient creature intent on claiming both of their souls. From writer-producer Jennifer Mancini and starring Annie Tuma and Ariana Marquis, Flee the Light is a tale of witchcraft, demonic possession, and sisterhood. Flee the Light is available now on all major streaming platforms and via your cable and satellite providers. Check your local listings. And remember, it hunts in the night. This announcement was made possible with the support of Ontario Creates. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the slab here. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. You, you came from a showbiz family. So was it expected that you would go into the performing arts? Um, I, I think it was uh, sort of, I don't know if it was expected. I don't know if my parents wanted me to, but it was sort of just our lives. So uh, I don't think it was unexpected when I right. <laughs> ended right. up going that way. I mean, from a very young age, I was interested in everything about uh, movies and television i watched a lot of tv as a kid you know 
Yeah. Well, your parents, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira in the in the 50s and 60s were like the big comedy duo uh, at a time of Nichols and May and the like. So I imagine that gave you entree to if they would go on to Ed Sullivan or Mike Douglas or something, little six-year-old Ben might have been tagging along. Yeah, I mean, or watching at home or just kind of, uh, you know, somehow being around it. Uh, you know, definitely as we got older, they would take us around with them to doing whatever they were doing. And it was all very uh, exciting and always, you know, different time, you know, early 70s. It was kind of a little more lo-fi show business was. I felt like, you know, you kind of New York. We lived in New York. We didn't live in L.A. And uh, I just remember, you know, they did uh, some game shows that they would shoot in a, a studio that was off of 7th Avenue between, I think, like 7th Avenue and 58th Street, uh, an ABC studio. And just it felt like we almost could, uh, you know, get in a cab and go and then go home. And uh, it was very um, homey in a way that just sort of the show business world was sort of just part of our lives. Right. So um, your performing started at a very early age. I mean, you were, you were on your mom's TV show, Kate McShane <laughs> yeah. at nine years old, but also mm -hmm. you were on stage uh, at the New York city first all children's theater. Tell me about the theatrical experience. <laughs> that's different. Uh, well, I guess I really wanted to be doing theater and I was maybe uh, 13, 12 or 13 years old. I, I'm trying to figure out how that happened, but uh, it was on 65th Street uh, off of Broadway. And yeah, it was called uh, the First All Children's Theater, also known as the uh, Merry Mini Players. And they did original productions there and it was uh, very professionally run and you had to show up on time for rehearsals and there were kids from five or six years old all the way up through teenagers and there was also a teen company too that was uh, sort of a separate thing but uh, I made some really good friends there one of my best friends Anthony Burley I'm still friends with um, who was a an actor also and you know it was a funny time because we were sort of 12 13 14 you know teenagers adolescents uh, and in this theater atmosphere, um, and sometimes, you know, it, it's very intense, uh, and, and the kids there, I think, you know, again, it was like the seventies. So there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, we were kind of latchkey kids too. My parents were away working a lot too. So, uh, I remember loving it and having fun. And, uh, uh, you know, we did uh, a musical of Jack and the Beanstalk called Clever Jack that um, CBS TV, the local CBS affiliate came in and filmed wow. for, as, a, as a local TV special. And I remember that sort of being one of the first experiences I had performing in anything that was uh, professional and being filmed. And it was, it was a uh, really fun and, you know, also a lot of work too, uh, but it was, uh, and singing and dancing, which I'm not really that great at, but it was, uh, it was, uh, I, have, I have great memories of it. Yeah. Well, it, it seemed to be that, that comedy was, was sort of the path that you would follow, even though that path seems to have changed a bit. But one thing I didn't realize is you were a drummer in a post-punk band, Capital Punishment. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess, yeah, it, it was a high school band. Uh, I wasn't very good, uh, <laughs> but uh, the band was uh, basically, you know, the kids in my class, this uh, kid, Chris Roebling, who was really, he was really talented. And 
we still play together actually um but this was like 1982 we recorded an album that our parents funded and <laughs> i think bought also they were sort of like they, they did everything they funded the album and they bought it um <laughs> but it was uh you know experimental music i think uh, chris was sort of the musical genius behind it and my friend peter swan played bass and peter zussi was on guitar and uh yeah, I mean, we're actually playing at the high school benefit. The high school I went to, we're playing at the benefit uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's so, phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I, I was, uh, you know, it was out of, I, I was just learning how to play the drums. So that was sort of part of it, too, is that I think that we were a little bit uh, rough around the edges. But how great that you did it. I was in a band in the 70s and we put out our first CD like a year ago. And really? From oh, wow. old recordings from the 70s that we sweetened with new vocals and instrumentation and stuff. So the idea that you guys have reunions now and then is pretty pretty phenomenal. Yeah, well, our, our album was discovered by a company called Captured Tracks a few years ago. And they made it available uh, online or like, you know, wherever. I guess they actually even printed a few albums too. But uh, we went back in and we recorded a new track too, which was fun. How great. Yeah. How and I think it was, yeah, I think I've gotten a little bit better than I was back then. I'm still not great, but, you know, I practiced. <laughs> I've had like 35 years of practice. I should hope. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you also, I mean, from the beginning, you weren't just interested in performing. You were a creator as well. Um, you were making eight millimeter movies with your friends and with your sister, Amy, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So t tell me what your, what were the movies that you watched? What were the inspirations? Uh, as a kid? I mean, yeah. you know, I was watching, I mean, I was watching a lot of uh, TV and going to the movies to watch like Planet of the Apes and Towering Inferno and, you know, those big, those big Irwin Allen disaster movies. Yeah. Also going to see all those great movies in the 70s that were happening, you know, so going to see uh, um, Coppola movies and uh I guess, you know, a little bit later on, you know, I love Scorsese too, but, you know, in the, the early 70s, I think there was also, you know, there was such a mix of genres happening in movies, you know, movies themselves, they, they didn't have to be, even comedies were sort of less oriented towards just being funny. And there were these, you know, great uh, Hal Ashby movies, I think for me, that were the ones yeah. that I, I really loved and continued to sort of look back on and still do. Like Harold um, and Maud and yeah, and being there and um, you know I think uh, even uh, coming home and oh, yeah. you know the way that I don't there's just a different um, approach to the filmmaking than in in uh, mainstream movies that was different than what's accepted now in mainstream movies. You know the studio movies back then were much more character oriented and we're telling stories that didn't have necessarily have perfect happy endings or a, co a comedy would also could also be very dark like Harold and Maude. Um, and the filmmakers were sort of, you know, doing their thing and kind of being allowed to just express, you know, their, their visions in a way that didn't relate to box office or box office success or, and the budgets were probably, you know, smaller than too in terms of what was, uh, you know, being given to make these movies, but they were, were reaching wider audiences. So it was kind of, I, I don't know, I, I guess maybe sometimes it's a nostalgia thing, but you go back to the movies that you watched when you were at a formative age. So for me, those movies have always stuck with me and kind of been, you know, an inspiration in terms of like the vibe and the tone of things that I 
respond to, um, you know, the Sydney Lament movies, you know, like Dog Day Afternoon or yeah. um, Serpico yeah. or um, Prince of the City, which was like early, early 80s, I think. But uh, Gritty and very, very East Coast. You're, you're a New York born guy, even though you were in L.A. for a long time. Yeah, you're yeah, back for in sure. Yeah. yeah, no, I grew up in New York and moved to L.A. probably uh, when I was around 21 or two or something like that. And uh, then ended up coming back to New York about uh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And glad I came back, you know, just having kids and letting them have the experience of growing up in New York, uh, which has changed a lot since when I was a kid. For yeah, sure. an amazing um, city. But, you know, I love those New York movies from the from the 70s. You know, my dad was in The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Oh, one of my favorites. Such a great movie. Um uh, I think we watch it once a year, just also with my kids, because they get to see their grandpa. Their grandpa and yeah. yeah, and it's, uh, you know, the casting and the the um, the tone of it, where it's, a, you know, an action movie, but it's got that New York reality and uh, shot by Owen Reutzman and just, you know, like this sort of gritty, uh, but real looking and still... Uh, I don't know. There's like a, a style to those movies that's very unaffected, and just I, the thing I think of when I think of them is like they're, they're just they, they feel very visceral and very real, even if it's a lighter movie. I mean, I also think about movies like um, The Hot Rock. Uh, oh yeah, Peter Yates. Yeah, George Siegel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and Robert Redford, George Siegel, and that's a comedy, and sort of a lighter comedy, but still has that you know that '70s New York kind of uh, patina to it which, uh, right. you know, I, I, I really love. Well, it seems like movies changed a lot in 1969 with Easy Rider. Suddenly the studios wanted to make Dr. Doolittle and the filmmakers knew how better to connect with a young audience that was suddenly burgeoning and it wasn't mom and dad going to the movies together anymore. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, you know, it definitely was a, a, a change and a change in what the audiences were looking for and what they were accepting. I mean, I guess that, that came out of the 60s and just culturally what was going on uh, into the early 70s. Uh, it was definitely a much more, I think, interesting time uh, for movie making because of the variety of films that were being made. I mean, some of them are out there and just don't, you know, are just you watch them today and you, and you go, gosh, how, how did they even, you know, how they even let them make that movie? Because uh, they just would never get anywhere near, you know, making a studio movie that's so open-ended or, you know, doesn't fall into one specific category. Um, you know, I think of the movies of Elaine May too that she made, like oh, yeah. uh, Heartbreak Kid, the original Heartbreak Kid, and uh, you know, just uh, a comedy about uh, sort of sort of a character that's you know. Uh, basically really not likable and doing awful things <laughs> and just embarrassing yeah, yeah. and uh and, and you were able so to funny. remake that movie and, and a very different that. version with the Farrelly yeah. brothers yeah. yeah um uh and for me the original is just one of my favorite movies because because charles Grodin's performance is is just it's so funny um and, and he plays that character so honestly, the guy who just can't be satisfied with what he has. And I've always loved the last scene of that movie where this character finally kind of gets what he wants. You know, he gets the girl that, of his dreams and, and sort of like left this sort of like burning uh, detritus in the background of his life, you know, like to get to this point. And 
Uh, and then he's just at this party and he starts talking to these two kids, you know, and yeah. trying to strike up a conversation. <laughs> and you realize he's just like he's talking about it's kind of his own bullshit that he just kind of always is running. And uh, it's just one of those moments in a movie where you go, God, that's just so, you know, just it, it, it's so funny to me to see some a, a moment like that. And that's that's the end of the movie, um, yeah. which, yeah. you know, again, these days you wouldn't really see is the end of a movie. Well, filmmakers with a cinematic personality seem to have an explosion in the 70s. That's when people like William Friedkin and Steven Spielberg and, and uh, all, yeah. Sidney Lumet and all these people were... And George Lucas, too, you know? George as yeah. well. They all kind of entirely turned the course of cinematic evolution. Yeah, it's interesting how... And, and they each went in their different directions, you know, some more commercial commercially uh, oriented than others um, but even when you look at what George Lucas did uh, the way that he got uh, his first movie made and, uh, and American graffiti and then you know how it almost didn't even get released um, yeah. was, you know, that story and then was able to then take his crazy concept for this you know um, this Star Wars movie and get them to make it um, you know it's it's like it just kind of happened and you know we now look at it as this you know the canon of the star wars movies and the, and the, the universe that these films also you know star trek in its own way too um you know which started as a an unsuccessful series in the in the late 60s and then you know was discovered and then became these sort of this bedrock you know sort of cultural uh you know uh uh, uh institutions now like you know that that are just you know that i mean they started as these these maverick filmmakers who were trying to get their idea off the ground and then they you know the ideas were so potent and had a chance to develop in a way that again like today i don't know if there's that much opportunity maybe in television more but in movies i think there's such a need for something to appeal to a mass audience immediately you know and when you look at these um these franchises and these these uh these movies that have become so much a part of our lexicon uh you you forget how they started by really almost some of them didn't even uh they almost didn't even get off the ground yeah it it seemed at that time in the 70s and 80s the big hits were the movies that weren't like everything else that came before yeah yeah um and that was because i think also the filmmakers were at, you know were trying to kind of do their own thing and were being allowed to experiment a little bit maybe because the stakes weren't as high and there wasn't as much of a need to reach a global audience even though uh, i you know, you know jaws i guess changed that in terms of a movie that hit so big that all of a sudden there was like the opening weekend became uh, such an important part of a movie success right well you're media savvy you like me we were brought up on television and media and and all uh so you did a lot of mockumentary and your hustle of money was something that really kind of changed things for you in that it became picked up by SNL and led to you working on SNL. Yeah, it was a short that I made with a couple of friends, Ralph Howard and Steve Clayman, and uh, we kind of co-made the film together. And it was a takeoff on The Color of Money, the Scorsese movie starring Tom Cruise. And right. I was the sequel doing... to The Hustler. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I uh, we had this idea to do a takeoff on that because it was a popular movie at the time. And so we got a 16 millimeter camera and I got all my friends together, my parents and my sister and everybody I knew. And we put the money that I, uh, I, I'd been working on in a play 
and that that was sort of my first job as an actor and just put it all into making this this 16 millimeter film but then but you know that this was pre youtube and really anywhere to go with something like that there wasn't like a place you would go with a short except for saturday night live but saturday night live didn't usually put shorts on that didn't have cast members from the show in it right. but uh John Lovitz, who had come to see the play that I was doing, uh, brought it up to Lauren Michaels uh, to to watch on a Thursday afternoon. I, I got him a video cassette of the of the short, and they watched it. And Jim Downey, who was the head writer at the time, they both saw it and said, "This is funny. Let's put it on the air on Saturday." And that that's how how uh, I really got a break to start doing stuff because then I was able to audition for the show and got a job as a apprentice writer and a featured player uh, but you wanted to do more short films right uh yeah and, yeah and i wanted kind of, yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i wanted to be albert brooks you know that that's yeah. who who i really you know he's probably for me as a filmmaker with the most uh you know in, influential because he was just doing this thing where he had a personality and he had sort of this kind of self-important vibe of this like you know kind of this guy who took himself really seriously and it was so funny uh and he was doing these shorts for snl yeah uh starring himself and uh i was like oh that's the kind of thing i want to do and, and then he started making features uh i'd say uh his first three movies are, are three of my favorite movies um real life which yeah. to me is a, such a classic uh, where he plays himself, uh, and that was him doing sort of a takeoff on uh, the uh, PBS documentary about the Loud family. Yeah, where they followed a family around for I guess a year or something. Uh, the first and in like, his film, they have big helmet cameras on, so they're yeah, the Etnauer Five Thousand. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and throughout the entire movie, you see these people with these like space camera helmets going through the frames, uh, and yeah, that that movie for me was just. Uh, uh, kind of like you know one of those that were the tonally it was just like okay this guy is just doing such a specific take on show business too you know and i think i related to that because i grew up around that so the same reason why i love spinal tap too is uh, oh yeah you know, it was sort of like making fun of how people take themselves so seriously in show business um and then i think if you didn't know that sometimes you go like well just you know maybe not get that because it seemed like they were just taking themselves seriously but you know, there's such a subtle satire going on that was so specific that I really related to. Well, the comedy of embarrassment that that Albert Brooks was so good at also became very much a hallmark of your work in the comedy films was you do things that were so embarrassing <laughs> and you would become embarrassed by them and with the Farrelly brothers. But you know, Flirting with Disaster is is one that is one of my favorite films of all time. And thanks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a David O. Russell. I guess it's his I think it was his second movie. Yeah. After Spanking um, the Monkey. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he had, you know, it, it's interesting. I think like in his mind, he was kind of making some sort of a screwball comedy, you know, and, and from from the 30s or something, you know, in terms of yeah. the tone. But then he had such a fresh and, and specific look at these characters and also the subject matter of, you know, families and getting into the sort of, you know, that those uncomfortable areas and the relationship and relationships and families, uh, with your parents. And that movie was a lot about, uh, 
guy who, you know, thinks he finds out he's adopted and wants to find his birth parents and, you know, the relationships that we have with our parents. And he really, I mean, it had such a great tone to it because it was really ridiculous, but yes. he cast it with these great actors, Alan Alda and Lily Tomlin and Josh Brolin, Richard Jenkins, Patricia Arquette. I mean, it's just an amazing cast. So it was, uh, and, and David has such a, uh, you know, very clear sense of what, you know, of, of, of what he wants and the energy that he creates in the movie really comes through. Yeah, it's great. Well, you were able to bring this, I guess SCTV was a real um, inspiration for the Ben Stiller show. You were able to bring together a, a group of, of really talented people who weren't familiar to an audience with MTV and do that. And later it went on Fox. Tell me about how all that came together. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I loved SCTV. I, when that came on the air, my sister and I just ate it up because it was exactly what we were talking about. It was skewering. First of all, they were doing the show in Canada, somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Canada, like Edmonton, Edmonton Alberta. Yeah. Right. But yeah. yet they were doing this like very specific Hollywood satire where they would take movies and show business figures and and really get into their, you know, the self-important aspect of all that and take a, a genre and mix it and do like, you know, do something like the Merv Griffith show where it was Merv Griffin starring in the Andy Griffith show, um, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, and Dave Thomas's Bob Hope was yeah. just Yeah, oh, incredible. And Eugene Levy and Catherine yeah. O'Hara and... Um, who, by the way, now are, you know, having such, such success with Shit's Creek. Yeah. Um, and it's really great to see. I mean, I was just so happy to see how Eugene Levy and his son, Dan, have, you know, had this success doing and working together. And I, I've been a fan of Eugene's for so long. So, yeah. um, you know, they, they were just doing Bobby Bittman, uh, this character they did. It was like a, you know, like this Hollywood comic, you know, sort of like a Vegas comic. Yeah. How um, are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, and, you know, Sammy Maudlin, who was like the talk show host that Joe Flaherty played. And it was all Hollywood, you know, kind of showbiz bull that they were always, you know, just like the fake Hollywood stuff. And it, and it was just so specific and so funny to me. So, uh, as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and working on my own stuff, that, that was always in my head, like that, doing that kind of comedy. And I started to develop a show with my friend, Jeff Kahn, who was a writer and, uh, we were roommates and we did a show at MTV. That was a sketch comedy show that was sort of based on the idea of me being myself ben stiller kind of i was like trying to do like an albert brooks kind of character right where i was ben stiller who was sort of full of himself and wanted to have his own <laughs> sketch show and then that translated into this fox show which um we did sketches that and we sort of dropped that character my, the character of, of ben stiller as you know the self-involved ben stiller and just became about the sketches and that was where i met uh janine garofalo and andy dick and you know we just were trying to do i think comedy that you know we related to that we thought was funny and was very much inspired i think by the snl and and sctv stuff we'd seen either growing up or in the last you know few years and it was fun it didn't didn't last that long but we had a really great time when we were doing it well in 1993 i offered you the role of larry underwood in the stand not realizing you were prepping to direct your first feature reality bites <laughs> That's right. Oh my God. 
Yeah. I remember being very, very excited though, to actually get an offer as an actor. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that was a big well, deal from well, you. Well, I was a huge, a, a huge fan of, of the Ben Stiller show. And then, but your first feature was independent in the truest sense of the word. You actually had to raise the money and everything and put that together bit by bit by bit. Um, yeah, I mean, we ended up being, uh, it was, it ended up being on, made by Universal and we were lucky that, you know, uh, we had great producers, uh, Danny DeVito and um, uh, Stacey Scher and uh, Michael Schamberg. And, you know, it was, Helen Childress had written this script that was based on her life. And it was really, uh, the idea was, you know, she was, putting her voice out there at, at, you know, about a time in life when you kind of like come out of high school and come out of college. And then you're like, what do you do now in life? And I feel like she hit on themes that were very, uh, of, of very much of the moment. I think the movie's very much a nineties timepiece, but, right. uh, it also, I think has, you know, that, that universal experience of like, how do you get into the world and figure out who you are when you know you're finally out of school and you have to define yourself. So being a creator, you'd been doing it since you were doing your Super 8 movies as a kid. You were creating your own stuff. You were making it up as you went along. Um, you were the son of comedians. You were doing comedy on SNL. You did the Ben Stiller show. You're directing movies. Then movies like Permanent Midnight come along, which is anything but a comedy. So tell me about the experience of moving outside of that, what may have been your comfort zone. Well, I was always interested in doing different kinds of things. And when that opportunity came up, it felt very uh, organic because the character was somebody who was uh, a writer in show business and Hollywood and the world that I kind of was familiar with. The, the part of it that I wasn't as familiar with was the, uh, you know, was the addiction part uh, to, to heroin and that was what was interesting to me. The guy was this, you know, kind of uh, Jewish writer in Hollywood trying to make it and it's funny, but self-deprecating, but had this, you know, awful problem. And he wrote this very, uh, very honest memoir that was very, very funny too, uh, Jerry Stahl. Yeah. And so when I read it, I, I saw something in the humor there that really, I really related to, yet it was also, you know, a very, complicated uh, drama too. So that was fun to sort of delve into, you know, kind of relating back to what we were talking about, the movies uh, from the seventies that didn't really necessarily have one uh, genre that they were a part of. So uh, I got to know Jerry and had time with him before the movie got, uh, actually got uh, okayed to be made about nine or 10 months. So we hung out together and then made the movie, uh, very, very low budget, um, you know, really short shoot, but um, I had a really, really good time because it was a fully committed experience. And I really liked that process of kind of going into something where you can just put your whole self into it and having sort of, you know, no uh, distractions and just doing the work. What is the difference in your process between, you know, you've worked a lot as an actor for hire in big Hollywood blockbusters. You've made your own Hollywood blockbusters as a director, but as a writer as well. When you're writing, is it a solitary exercise or do you prefer writing with 
uh, a partner? Um, well, I'm, I'm a very collaborative person and I've always looked at, for me, the, any screenwriting that I've done has always been in service of trying to get the movie made. In, in other words, I, I don't consider myself a really good writer, I, but I want to get the ideas down to be able to then figure out how to put them up on the screen. And writing with somebody in that way, I find really uh, can be a good process because I want to write, work with a great writer. I want to work with somebody who also uh, I can bounce off of. And that, that's one thing. But lately in, in life, I've started to write on my own also. And I think there's you know, nothing like that process. Um, you know, I have friends who are writers and directors and, you know, it's a very different process when you write by yourself. And I think in a way that you find things that you wouldn't find if you were collaborating with somebody else. But over the years, I've always appreciated that having that other person there to bounce. Right. Off, you know, well, be, as a director, it's a very social business. You know, you're surrounded by talented people, a hundred questions a minute. Um, and thinking on your feet is an important part of it. Do you find it particularly directing comedy would seem to be so demanding because after 10 takes, nothing seems funny, does it? Yeah. I mean, directing comedy, I think is, you know, it, it's sort of like you're an audience for the actors and you're, you know, you want to set up whatever the scene is in a way that you make sure that you're capturing what's funny about it um, visually, you know, that you're seeing what you need to see um, and that actually the camera and your ideas as a director aren't getting in the way of people just enjoying what they need to, you know, enjoy to get the joke and to laugh and to see the actors do their thing. So I think a lot of comedy directing is stepping back and, you know, really being invisible as a director but knowing where you have to have the camera so that you uh, are able to tell the story and, and the joke and all of it. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the directing part of comedy is kind of fun too, because you get to sort of, you want to have a fun atmosphere on set and you want people to feel free to do their thing and to take chances. And, you know, to, it doesn't work well when you have a very stressed out, set you know <laughs> right nothing does yeah yeah nothing does but especially you know comedy i think um and yeah when you get a few takes into it you know the reality is it's never going to be quite as funny as the first or second time that you did it at least to the people watching it and sometimes it can be a little bit confusing or misleading with the with the um crews because you know i've also felt that as an actor where you go, oh, the crew's not laughing or this isn't funny. <laughs> right. You right. kind of have to commit to what you're doing because you really don't know if it's going to work until months and months later when it's in front of an audience. So it's that, that belief in sort of yourself and going, okay, I'm just going to take this chance and I'm going to commit to doing whatever thing I need to do in this scene and trust that it's going to work in the context of the movie. Yeah. Well, uh, another Another time we met was in an elevator when you were meeting with the people about maybe directing A Simple Plan, Scott Smith's book. And Stephen King had recommended me to direct A Simple Plan as well. And it ended up being very well made by Sam Raimi. That's right. So oh, tell that's so funny. I just had dinner with Scott Smith last night. How about that? That's pretty amazing. But you also 
then did collaborate on The Ruins, which your company, Red Hour Films, and Red Hour, I assume, is a Star Trek reference. Yes, it is. <laughs> good for you for knowing that. <laughs> or maybe not good for you. I don't know. Or maybe not, yeah. <laughs> Hello, Star Trek movie. Um, yeah, no, um, I mean, Scott is an amazing writer. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, you have your history with Simple Plan. I have my history with Simple Plan. It was... Uh, and very, uh, you know, it's for me a seminal experience because it was the first time I'd ever worked on a movie where then the movie didn't happen and fell apart. And so you me, actually went into pre-production on it. Yeah, we got about, um, I'd say, six or seven weeks out from shooting. And, wow, I and, had no idea. Yeah, and Mike Nichols was the producer on it. And Mike... Um, and the company that was making it and Mike had a difference of opinion about the budget. And now as a more experienced producer and filmmaker, I, you know, I look back at what Mike was really basically standing up for the movie and saying to the studio, you know, this budget isn't enough and it's not, you know, we can't make the movie in the right way. And I remember sitting in a meeting with him and, and the head of the studio and watching the movie basically fall apart because Mike was saying, you know what, you can't do it like this. And, now I look back and it's like, yeah, he was, he was definitely right for us at that moment in time. You know, he had to make that hard decision. Well, how painful it must be to be so invested in a project that the book was terrific. And I know Scott wrote the screenplay as well. And to be just weeks away, you've already done most of your casting, I assume. And here's a movie waiting to be made and it's shot in the head. Yeah, it never feels good, and it's and it's happened since to me. <laughs> oh, um, and you know, it's just part of what movie making is. Sometimes it, it doesn't. You know, the fact that something actually comes together when a movie's being made, I'm always amazed at. You know, all the different elements and the need for a studio to get on board with your vision and to feel uh, that they're, you know, that they feel, uh, you know, these days, like we were talking about, in terms of like what makes a studio feel confident in a movie. Um, especially if it's a movie that's not necessarily something that's straight down the middle and that has its own, um, you know, set of uh, obstacles and, and, you know, things that might, might not make it the easiest movie to get made when they finally do get made. It's, it's really amazing that you get to that point. I never take that for granted, maybe because of that experience I had back then. Well, working with Scott Smith, I mean, this show, we talk a lot about the horror genre and it's a kind of a, a main focus for us, but The Ruins was something, how did that come about? And I believe, even though it was set in the tropical jungles, uh, it was shot in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, a, that project, you know, it was a really great book and, you know, this this really scary, weird idea that these these vines sort of came to life in this uh, area in the jungle and sort of, you know, take over this group of um, uh, people who are out there. Uh, you know, Scott, he's such a, an amazing prose writer and he's a really good screenwriter too. He has a very, um, you know, very simple, I think, approach to, to his writing and it's very visceral and real. And he's, you know, he doesn't shy away from this sort of like this scary, weird, cringy stuff that I think scares us. Yeah. Uh, and my producing partner at the time, Stuart Kornfeld, uh, was very much about making this movie. And I, I really give credit to Stuart for getting that movie made. And 
Um, and he was down there in Australia making it. And it was, uh, it was, it was definitely challenging to visualize what, uh, Scott had written. Um, but, uh, I think everybody, you know, it's one of those movies that I'm, I'm really proud that we made. Yeah. It's a very intense movie and one that has not gotten enough attention. I really liked it a lot and, and a really good adaptation of the book as well. Yeah. In more recent years, you've been concentrating less on performance and more on directing, but very unexpectedly, Escape at Dannemora was a miniseries that you did that's very dramatic, very not a comedy project. So tell me how that came about and, and how you prepped for that and how, how, what your take was. Yeah, I mean, I I had been doing a comedy. I was doing Zoolander 2 in Italy and this escape happened from this uh, prison in upstate New York and I didn't really hear much about it. And maybe six months later, I was back in the States in New York and I got sent this uh, treatment and a pilot that had been written by um, Michael Tolkien and Brett Johnson as a proposed limited series about this this. Um, story about this woman who worked in this uh, prison who helped these two murderers escape. Uh, and it was pretty fascinating. I hadn't been looking to do anything like that, but the story was so interesting to me. I, I got in touch with them and we started talking about the story and the reality of the story. And I asked them how much they had, they made up in their script and they had made up a fair amount. And we had a, a lot of back and forth about that because I felt for me, if I was going to make something like this, I really wanted to gravitate towards the, the, the true story as much as possible. I didn't feel like I wanted to just make up a, a prison escape. So we sort of agreed to not make it because we didn't feel like we had enough of the true story for a while. And then a few months later, when the uh, New York State uh, Inspector General, who was looking into what happened at the prison, published a report it had all these details and that was what we went into and decided, okay, we have all the information now that we could really base the show on. So it was all based in, in truth. And that's what I kept going back to and, and interviewing people who had been a part of it. And we interviewed one of the uh, inmates who escaped, who had survived and uh, talked to people involved with it and went to the real prison. And it was a really, uh, really great experience making the show for me because it was the first time I really was directing something that I hadn't acted in probably since the cable guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. Well, it also harkens back to the movies of the seventies we were talking about. Here's this New York gritty true life story. It's like a Sidney Lumet movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I really did gravitate towards that feeling in that prison. You know, when you go to that place, because it really could be, 1970 in there or it could be 1950 in there i mean it's you know that's kind of one of the chilling things about these prisons is that they you know they they're they're not uh, very friendly places and they do sort of remain stuck in time and that's also part of what happened in the in the actual prison the reason why they were able to escape because the place was sort of you know not up to standards in terms of the security measures um, and you can understand why when you look at the greater sort of uh, picture of the prison system and, and uh, you know, just it's a very, very uh, flawed system and for, for prisoners especially uh, and uh, for the people who work there also too, because they have to deal with these, you know, it's, a, it's a, the, the conditions of working these places 
you know, and they're paid very little. And so, so both ends of the story are, you know, very interesting, I think. And, you know, the, the storytelling part of it is when you do get into a prison, you know, I'm sure you're aware now with storytelling, so much of uh, a story can be solved or figured out by just getting on a phone or getting on a smartphone, you know, right. like you don't have uh, that part of the story where people have to go to the library and research what happened or, you know, anymore. And, and so, which kind of takes, I think a lot of the fun out of, uh, of, of movies these days, because everybody just sort of can be on their phone and learn everything they need to learn. So, yeah, yeah. you know, when you go into a prison situation that doesn't exist, cell phones aren't allowed. And so all of a sudden, you know, people are passing notes and there's sort of secret messages and there's different ways that people are communicating with each other that do harken back to an earlier time. And I found that uh, to be a real, you know, plus in being able to find interesting ways to tell the story. And it was also so well received. It won a lot of awards and, you know, in, in a genre that people did not expect it from you. And it also reunited you with uh, Patricia Arquette who way back from Fording with Disaster. And now I see that you're producing a new series, High Desert, that stars her and your wife, Christine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Christine's playing Patricia's sister. Uh, that's a crazy comedy about a woman who also happens to be uh, a heroin addict who is a private investigator and is putting her life together. And uh, it's you know, an amazing role for Patricia. And, uh, and also Matt Dillon is in it and, uh, and Christine and a bunch of other great actors. Uh, but yeah, so I love Patricia. She's, you know, a very special actress and we've had a great time working together really after not having seen each other for, you know, 20 plus years. Before so was it really Escape at Danamora that brought you back together since flirting with disaster? Yeah, we hadn't seen each other hardly at all. We had the same manager back, back in the day and Molly Madden, who, um, we're still friends. I'm still friends with. And so she brought us back together and I knew Patricia would be so convincing uh, as Tilly in, in Escape of Danamara. So, you know, that, that was for me, she was sort of the key to telling that story because you had to really empathize and also sort of not like this character too, because she's right. doing, you know, very confusing things as an audience where you go like, should I be on her side or not? I mean, you know, she's not afraid. She's not afraid to delve into that kind of stuff and, you know, show a character uh, fully and not worry about having to have the audience necessarily empathize with her. But, but yet that ironically allows an audience, I think, to connect to her more. And then speaking of Patricia Arquette, along comes Severance. So Severance is really special as well. And it is science fiction. Um, and it's extremely cinematic and it has a very specific style that's almost Kubrickian in its spareness. And uh, it, it's the story of being able to literally split your personal life with your work life. Did, yeah, that, yeah. did that have themes that called out to you as a very public person? <laughs> um. You know, I don't know what I responded to consciously about it. I think subconsciously it just hit me and, I, and I'm feeling the way that for people who, who see the show and, and respond to it, I think it hits them on some sort of subconscious level because the concept is so fascinating. The idea of being able to put a chip into your head where you could literally, you know, 
disconnect from a whole part of your memory. Uh, and, you know, for in this instance, it's a guy who goes to work and the chip gets triggered and he forgets everything about his life on the outside when he's at work. And when he leaves work, he forgets everything that happened at work. And uh, that happens to, I think, coincide right now with how people are dealing with work and life and, you know, post pandemic and how we sort of separate out our lives and really are looking at our lives differently, I think, because of, uh, of that. I know I've started to look at my life differently in terms of how much time I spend at work, what are my priorities, you know, how does that relate to my family life? And I, I felt that even when we were making the show with the people who were working on the show. Tell me about how that came together. Um, you know, you directed the first three and last three out of the nine episodes. Right. And it's a very directed show. It's a very specifically designed show. And it feels like a filmmaker working at the peak of his powers, doing something very specific. And I'd love to get the thinking behind the, the spareness, the, the austerity of the work environment versus what's happening at home. Oh, thanks, Mick. I mean, you know, the writing was so evocative. Dan Erickson, who created it, he'd written this pilot and had not had anything produced up to this point. And I read it and I was like, this is great. It really, it just immediately made me think of um, the the feeling of what this world was because he he wrote something that was so evocative. And it reminded me of a lot of I guess, imagery and, and, and uh, things that I had seen at both consciously and subconsciously. And it felt like a very specific environment, uh, you know, especially the idea of the severed floor of this uh, company where these people work, where they don't know who they are, or what they're doing or why they're there. And that sort of, um, and, yet, and yet there was also this comedic element to it, which reminded me of, office comedy and that this genre that we had that <laughs> was developed by the office, you know, that came out of probably, I think it's been around for, I, I think Mike judge really, you know, explores his, his tone is, you know, what we see in office space Oh yeah. Um, or, um, you know, the show, the office that Ricky Gervais original one. And then that was uh, Greg Daniels did. And, and uh, there was just like a genre of that kind of back and forth comedy of people at work that was then being sort of put through the lens of this sort of abstract reality, almost a surreal uh, universe where everybody is kind of just doing their thing, but they don't know why. For and, the waffle party. Yeah. yeah, for the waffle party. Well, yeah, the perks. I mean, that's the thing. Dan really, you know, I think clued into office culture in terms of, you know, what the what these uh, rewards are that we get as we move up the ladder, but why are we moving up the ladder? Where's the ladder leading us? And um, uh, so there was like, you know, visually, it was just very evocative to me. And I had had a great experience working with Jessica Lee Gagne, our cinematographer on, on Escape at Danamora. And I think, you know, I, I, I talked to her about the project and we started to sort of explore, you know, visually what it could be. And then Jeremy Hindle, our production designer, came on and, you know, we just wanted to find a world that was familiar yet not specific to the world that we're in and you know that becomes you know when you're doing that you have to get very granular with everything because all of a sudden when you say okay we're not going to have any brand names we're not going to have anything 
that uh, relates to something we know uh, on television or what they're eating or drinking. And, you know, we're not doing science fiction or we're not doing the future uh, or the past, but we're just going to sort of create our own, our own world that is, you know, and, and yet, you know, you have to still sort of ground it in some sort of reality. So you're making these choices along the way. They're, they're kind of sometimes on the fly, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like, well, well, like what kind of cars can we have? Well, I, you know, I don't know. Let's, I just want the cars to feel kind of generic. And, you know, so let's figure out what that means, you know? Yeah, it's very much a plain wrap world. But at the center of it is Adam Scott, who is very much like Ben Stiller and every man that we can identify with. And so I imagine that those conversations you had were familiar with a place you'd come from as an actor many times. Yeah, I'd say Adam Scott is... Ben Stiller with better hair and a better <laughs> looking. Um, and I think he's like, uh, he's amazing. He's, um, he's just, first of all, yeah, his comedic sense is incredible. He's done this genre that we've seen of the office comedy. He also knows how to play uh, an asshole. He can play a really nice guy. He um, has a sense of what's needed for the project and for the part. Um, and I just had a feeling when I read this, when I read Mark, the character, Mark S, I was like, oh, this is Adam Scott. Adam's sort of perfected this kind of role, but yet it gives, gives him a chance to go places that people haven't seen within this kind of role. So uh, working with Adam was a dream and, and he got it from the beginning. And, you know, it was a challenge for him because he had to sort of create two halves of this character, but yet they're the same person. So he was... Um, having to sort of go between the Mark on the outside who has, you know, everything that he's experienced in his life and then Mark on the inside who doesn't know who he is and is kind of, in a way, emotionally a lot younger. So he, he got very specific with it. He did a lot of that work on his own, but um, on a day-to-day -day level, working with him as a, as a director, it's just so much fun because he'll take the smallest direction and it's like he'll fine-tune something and say, hey, just do it like maybe a little bit faster and a little bit, you know, maybe this one, you're a little more perturbed or whatever, whatever it is. And he'll just take that and he'll run with it. Um, and I just, I, I love working with him. Well, the show is conceptually brilliant and the, the way it is, is carried out and the production and all, it's so unique and special. And, you know, hopefully people will at least uh, check it out on Apple TV plus get their one week uh, sample of Apple TV so that right. they can binge you can it. get the one week sample binge it and then no I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's so many parts of your career and I know we have to wrap it up now because you have to get to the next thing but um, just what is it that you like the most in filmmaking? Is it acting? Is it, is it post-production? Is it pre-production? Is it in direction? Is it working with actors? What is it that, that really drives you? Well, I mean, to be able to do what you love doing is I think, first of all, the most, uh, the thing I'm most grateful for that you can go to work and really do what I love to do and to have the choice to say, hey, I want to make a movie about this and maybe it's hard to get it made. Maybe they'll make it, maybe we'll shut it down. But, you know, you most of the time you're able to get something to a place where you go, okay, I'm doing this, like to be able to do severance and really just kind of express, you know, myself in that way. 
I think that's really uh, something I'm really grateful for. So I, I, I love the process. I love uh, collaborating with people. I love working with actors. Um, I think the most satisfying part of the process for me is probably being in the editing room and being able to, cause, cause you labor to be able to have the choices that you want to have in the editing, editing room. You yeah. fight for the days and you fight for the hours and you, you know, stand out in the cold or the rain and you get those shots and uh, you know, you shoot for days and days and days and it can get exhausting. I mean, it's always, you know, exciting and fun not always fun but you know at least you know, it's not it's better than digging a ditch but it's you know but when you get into the editing room and you're able to put those pieces together and you know be able to uh feel a performance come together and then to work with the music and with you know the the juxtaposition of images and finding stuff in the editing room you know the things that you find in the storytelling where it all comes together that to me i think is the most the most satisfying part of it. And, uh, and then when it's done, that always feels good too. <laughs> yeah. And when you share it with an audience for the first time, that's, well, that's really fun. Yeah. Then it takes yeah. off on its own. Yeah. Well, it's been so great to watch your evolution as a filmmaker and the trajectory of your career and all of this. And I appreciate so much you spending the time with us and it's so good to catch up with you, Ben. Thanks, Mick. And that, thanks for wanting to hire me back in 93. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't? <laughs> Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.